Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Claire Martirana, the Federal Chief Information Officer. Always a pleasure to catch up. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much, Jason. Really excited to talk to you today. You know, the American people have been waiting, and today we are delivering some really exciting policy guidance on delivering a public-first digital experience. So this has been something we have been working on for over a year, building on some previous activities that the entire team has been working on. And we're excited to have a conversation with you about what's included in this guidance and how it is really going to transform the way the federal government interacts with and really delivers for the American people. We are trying to think big. Since the beginning of this administration, we have been focused on making sure that we are putting our customers first and delivering for all Americans across all abilities and really trying to drive digital as the default for how we operate the government. This is a 10-year transformation framework, and it has more than 100 actions and standards to help federal agencies design, develop, and deliver modern websites and digital services that are trustworthy, accessible, easy to use, and it's really an exciting moment for us. So there are some key components that this guidance will allow the American people to do. They should know when they're interacting with an official government website. Today, it's hard. You get search results, and there's hundreds, millions of search results for one question that you ask, and this will actually help all Americans with clear clarity around if they're interacting with a government website. We will also focus on getting the best answers to top questions in language that people can understand. They will be able to access government online services no matter what their ability level is. So we will be continuing to focus on Section 508 and all of the accessibility guidelines that the team has focused on for many years, but this is really going to be catalytic in improving. And then use government websites. The public should be able to use these websites on their mobile device. We need to meet them where they currently are in a way that works for them. A key part of this is this is multi-channel. Many people will be able to access these products and services through digital technology, computers, phones, et cetera. But there are still some people that are going to want and need to talk to somebody on the phone, stop in an office, and we will make sure that this is intersectional with those multi-channel experiences. So we are really helping have access to all of this. Thanks, Claire. Appreciate that explanation. Let's take a half a step back. The guidance has been in the works for several years now. Tell us a little bit about the goals of the guidance. We have some immediate agency and government-wide actions, top things that uh, agencies will need to do in the first 180 days of uh, this policy guidance. I say to my team all the time, you can't manage what you can't measure. So one of the top things that we'll be doing is identifying and uh, assessing top public-facing websites and digital services and for prioritization. We will be assessing common questions and top web content to make sure we eliminate duplication and that we are optimizing government content for SEO 
And we will also be inventorying public facing services and assess top tasks so that we can figure out if they can be digitized into self-service options for the public. Whenever you create a guidance like this, there's a lot that goes into it. How'd you work with agencies, the CIO council? How'd you go through the critical steps to get this out the door? We have coined the term, I think, human-centered policymaking, right? We have been working really closely with our agency partners, making sure we understand that each agency, they're on their own unique journey based on their technology stack, the, the types of benefits and services that they deliver. So we have been working with the multitude of agencies. And as we have some agencies that are very forward-leaning technically, they have really competent teams, and they've been on this journey for several years, many, many years. We have other agencies that are just beginning, and we are making sure that we are doing user testing, that we are gathering data that they have uh, been working on for many years, satisfaction scores, et cetera, to really assess where we can help them start on the journey or optimize the journey that they are currently on. Claire, I was reviewing the guidance and there's several different sections to it. There's a lot of pieces and parts to this memo. Let's start with the focus on analytics. What should agencies know about it? What do they have to do? Analytics are really critical for us, making sure that we can understand how users are utilizing these different digital properties, uh, you know, where we have abandoned rates, where we have um, opportunities to really deliver a, a better, more seamless uh, experience for uh, customers. Accessibility is a very large focus for us, making sure, as I said, that Section 508 accessibility standards are followed. Brand is something that is really challenging because it is very difficult if you're going on a multi-agency journey where you might have to complete tasks in two, three, four, five different agencies. It is very difficult starting at a search engine to make sure you're landing on accurate, credible, timely government content. Also very difficult when you're moving from one website to another, there's not consistent visual design. So it's really hard to understand if you're going from one trusted government website to another trusted, verified government website. So that is something that is also part of this policy framework. Content, the public shouldn't have to decipher multiple duplicate conflicting sources of content. That's our job. And we should be writing all of our content in plain language. As I mentioned, kind of intersects with brand is design. Every agency is required to use the U.S. web design system. That's not optional. That is mandatory. We need to deliver a consistent uh, look and feel to the public. And this guidance helps us with that. As I mentioned, search, we will both be optimizing for external from SEO into government, but also really important that we have consistency in our navigation on websites and that we have good quality search functionality within an agency vertical so that you're able to search within the agency website and make sure that you get that answer quickly and importantly. And I know that you have heard me say this before, but only 2% of our forms are fully digital and that is not acceptable. So we are also gonna be focusing on this um, policy framework 
actually will help us move towards building out a pathway and frameworks, both on the acquisition and contracting side that will help us build the best quality digital experiences, including forms, so that they are completely end-to-end, computer readable, and easy for um, the public to use. You mentioned the 10-year transformation framework, more than 100 actions. How are you breaking down those actions? How are you ensuring that this is not something agencies are going to get overwhelmed by? A couple of different ways. So it's not only 100 actions, it's also standards. One of the ways that we can really drive impact in government is by having standards. And that really lifts the boats across the board. Another way that we are, are really harnessing the power of this policy is marrying it with some of the work we've already been doing with the TMF. We have funding allocated for some of this work and making sure that we are developing the standards, playbooks, and best practices that will actually bring everybody along on the journey. What's the governance slash oversight slash what's the teeth in the policy to beyond the fact you're saying do it, which is always helpful. Is the CIO council or is OMB setting up some sort of, hey, we're going to meet quarterly scorecard and any of the, the like? Absolutely. That is one of the reasons that we are focused on uh, measurement. We are working closely with the CIO council on this, as well as uh, standing up some cross-agency governance processes, communities of practice, communities of action that will help us make sure that we are focused on this work. Also, within 90 days, the CIO council is going to establish a digital experience subcommittee of the CIO Council that is going to help us focus on this work, share the key learnings across the CIO community so that we can not only help the 24 CFO Act agencies, but we can also bring along all of our colleagues for this all of government effort. One of the things is, is uh, you talk about the CIO Council Digital Experience Subcommittee. Do we know who's going to lead that yet? Is that still to be determined? It's still to be determined working with the CIO, the current CIO council. We have several subcommittees and have folks putting in a lot of effort. So want to make sure that we are getting the people that are leaning into this involved um, and excited about what we're doing. All right. I know more than will come further down the road, as you said, about 90 days to set that up. So maybe by the end of the year. Claire, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue to discuss the 21st Century Idea Act, new guidance that's just come out. My guest is Claire Martirana, the Federal Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Claire Martirana, the Federal Chief Information Officer. As you go through this and all the different pieces and parts, analytics, accessibility, brand, as you said, a lot of this stuff has already been in the works. It sounds like the goal here is to bring some consistency to the application, right? Like we've talked about mobile first for a while. We've talked about the web design standards have been out there. The use of the .gov domains, uh, that's, uh, again, maybe a little surprising that uh, most agencies are already using the .gov domains, and it's probably the subdomains that really may be more challenging. When you look through this, where do you see some of the biggest lifts for agencies? And where, and, and then the opposite, where do you see some of the areas that we're doing pretty good across the board already, and there's maybe some tweaking that just needs to happen? We do have a lot of agencies that actually do work on um, 
.gov, you know, that are currently on .gov domains. We are also working to make sure that the existing federal website standards align with this guidance, right? We're not trying to pile additional guidance on top of other guidance. We have clarified that guidance and the updates will also include guidelines for branding, content, search, U.S. web design system, et cetera. And while this has been, uh, some of these shared frameworks have been around for a while, the new numbers that we have, um, Jason, we're, we're not meeting the public's expectations. 80% of federal websites do not use the U.S. web design system. So we have a long way to go. You know, 45% of federal websites are not mobile friendly. It's just not acceptable in the 21st century that the United States of America is not delivering this quality of services to the public. And we can do it if we work together, both leaning in on this policy framework, making sure that we were listening to our agency partners, making sure that we are working with our industry partners, which is mission critical in this. We can't do this alone. This has to be an all of government, private sector, public sector partnership that we make a decision in the United States that in the 21st century, we should be able to have digital by default services. You mentioned the TMF because I think that's the next thing people are going to start asking is, okay, great. Those are great ideas. I don't have any money for this. Very similar to Zero Trust. Has this been in the works, for instance, for the 2024 budget request, the 2025 budget that you guys are putting together currently? Is that all part of it? And then is there any, I know, I think a year ago, 15 months ago now, you all talked about the, for the TMF board, you as the chairwoman talked about, we're going to allocate about $100 million for CX efforts, customer experience efforts. And I know that's part of it. Uh, is there anything the TMF board is doing to start to push this out a little more quickly? You've made some awards, whether or not they're 100% in, in that $100 million or not, but there's made some awards for CX type of things. Uh, what's the TMF board doing to, to help jumpstart some of this effort? And then we'll talk more broadly about budget as well. The TMF board will be actively in, involved in this. We do still have the $100 million CX allocation that is available. We have not spent that down really uh, at all. <laughs> so we were really surprised that we did not have people banging on the door trying to get um, you know their website modernization efforts moving forward. But um, we will continue to work on that and make sure that we are tying funding to this policy. So one of the things that we learned through the work that we've been doing for the last um, two years with our budget colleagues at OMB is on cybersecurity, right? Uh, cybersecurity is a priority of the administration. Um, and we had worked very closely with our OMB budget colleagues to make sure that we were funding agencies appropriately, that they were spending the money on the um, multi-factor authentication and logging and the multiple standards, you know, encrypting uh, data in REST and in transit. Uh, we started some of this work through our spring guidance um, and we're signaling to agencies through FY25 spring guidance that these are important administration priorities and that we need to tie together our budget, the opportunity for us to focus our spending 
to drive the greatest impact possible. Clara, a lot going on. Uh, the, the question that comes up often, obviously, around this guidance is what took so long, which I know some of that is is pandemic related. Some of it is cyber related. I think we've talked about this in the past. So what's the message to agencies who said, well, we've been waiting for the guidance or we haven't been waiting for this guidance. So how do you ensure to them that this is not just, oh, you're telling me something I've already been doing, but but this is now will have a bigger impact than just, oh, it's another OMB memo, another uh, another thing I have to do. Well, you know, we're at a really important time, Jason, in our community. We've already been working with our agency partners on many component pieces of this. But one of the great opportunities of this is with so much of the work that we are doing with our cybersecurity portfolio, we are modernizing systems, we're retiring legacy systems, we're modernizing the way that we are, you know, zero trust strategy is really having a material impact on the federal ecosystem. Customer experience, digital experience, um, and IT modernization are riding along with cybersecurity. You can't separate these because if you're going to modernize a system in order to put in the right security framework, um, you had better be um, uh, designing with your users. You had better be really modernizing your entire ecosystem. So we, this has been a journey that the government has already been on and our agency partners have been working hard on. This is a way that we get to frame this and continue to focus because as you know, technology evolves really quickly. And this needs to be a longer term roadmap, you know, not a, a bunch of short term policies that people can choose to do or not to do. This is not optional. It is not optional that we are not digital by default. And it is time that we are focused on this as a community, our civic tech community, our vendor community. We have to bring everybody together, working together to actually drive this change that, that will revolutionize the way that the American public interacts with our digital ecosystem and our government. And that will help us build back trust. All right. Claire Monterana is the Federal Chief Information Officer. Claire, it's always a pleasure to catch up and uh, congratulations for getting this initial weight off OMB shoulders. And now you have new weight on your shoulders. We're looking forward to it, Jason. Thanks so much for your time. We need to take a break. When we come back, we'll shift gears and talk about the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, or FITARA. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this segment, I talked with Andre Mendez, the Commerce Department's CIO. I caught up with Andre after he spoke at the recent FATARA 16 roundtable. Andre, first, let me just say thanks for taking the time. Uh, we just got out of the FATARA roundtable. Commerce got a big congratulations. A couple thoughts on the latest set of scores. Where did you feel like you guys made some good progress? Where do you feel like there's some efforts that still need to go forward? I mean, in general, I'm, ple I'm pleased with the, with the report. Uh, I think that uh, you know our EIS score is going to continue to be a little bit of a burden for us because of uh, you know one of our agencies that's uh, the largest one, NOAA, has some uh, in intrinsic challenges with their geographical dispersion and the age of some of their um, you know uh, connectivity. So that's going to continue to be an issue on the on the FISMA side. I think that that also continues to be a bit of a challenge for us because a lot of the newest mandates in terms of zero trust architecture, multi-factor authentication, data encryption, so on and so forth, run firmly against some of our legacy platforms that are not easily adaptable to that. 
and where uh, the effort in order to make them comply with that uh, would be enormously expensive and probably counterproductive from a mission standpoint. So otherwise, we're doing okay. I have the feeling next year uh, we will continue to improve. And I look forward to getting to an A as well. But I also want, uh, I think it's important for people to understand that if everybody gets an A, then the document itself, the tool, stops being relevant, right? It is a continuing process where the criteria change and you might go backwards instead of forward because it's a new thing that you need to adapt to. And so, uh, you know, we look forward to the next iteration. There's a lot of conversation at the roundtable about cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Maybe going to the FISMA grades, there seemed to be a call for a little more consistency. There's too many differing, disparate types of grades. What does that lead to? Does that, when you all have conversations with OMB, with the Hill, with GAO, with your, with your own bosses, that's the difficulty in trying to explain why the grades are different and then, and then which ones really matter. Yeah, it, it is difficult because, uh, you know, in an area as sensitive as cybersecurity, everybody is keenly aware of it. And, and to a certain degree, it, it hurts your credibility when the score is one thing in one side, another thing in another side. And how do you portray that? Uh, the reality is that the metrics are different, and as a result, the scores come out different, and they reflect different situations and nuances within the cybersecurity arena. And so, you know, if we could have some degree of uh, standardization across that, I think it would be ben very beneficial. There seems to be a lot of support in the room today among your fellow CIOs for the performance.gov metrics. Is there something about them that you think kind of resonates with whether it's you personally as a CIO and your team or more broadly across the community? I think that they're a little more predictable, you know, in terms of the metrics themselves. And so they allow you to target particular areas that you want to target and make progress that is measurable uh, and that you can rely on. And so I think that that's one of the attractive parts of that, of that equation. You mentioned EIS just briefly. It's been a big challenge for every agency. When you look at the progress that you guys are making, what has to be done between now and uh, I think Commerce was one of the agencies that got an extension. What are some of the things you're focusing on from a CIO's perspective? Well, I expect that um, you know by the time the first extension is complete, that Commerce, except for one of our bureaus, will be totally transitioned without a problem. That last bureau is NOAA, and again, the geographic dispersity and some of their technologies make that more challenging. But because we got them an additional year in order to deal with that, I think that uh, we, we should be able to accomplish uh, that transition within those time frames. I wish that the scores may be reflected uh, that, uh, you know, we're no longer in a default position, so to speak. We are making progress with new milestones and deadlines that, therefore, should provide us with a little more leeway than just a pass-fail because it's a little too absolute for the progress uh, that we made and doesn't give all of the other bureaus credit for what, have been, what has been a substantial effort in terms of migration. I want to shift gears to one of the, some of the new metrics that the GAO and, and Ranking Member Connolly were starting to discuss, CIO Budget Authority, CIO Procurement Authority, but more importantly, the move to the cloud. Let me start with the move to the cloud. You mentioned two programs that you hopeful, if all goes well in the, in the coming days, the coming week, uh, will be moved. Let's start with the financial management. You're consolidating several systems into one. Talk a little bit about that effort. So we've had um, legacy systems uh, that are run in three different instances and that service different bureaus. They've been around for 20, 25 years, and they are a bit long in the tooth. So we're migrating into a software-as-a-service environment that is one instance for all of the bureaus. That migration will be gradual over three years. 
but that is basically being done without customizations so that we have the interfaces to other systems, but otherwise we're relying on out-of-the-box functionality, and we think that that's going to be a major leap forward for us. One, because it's software as a service and effectively obviates, uh, you know, three data centers over a certain period of time, and three, because the platform is a best practices from both the private sector and the federal environment, and so the reporting capabilities and the financial agility that you get from knowing exactly where you are at the end of every day is something that we don't have the luxury of today. And so that, that centralized dashboard that gives everybody an exact uh, picture of how they're doing financially is going to be a major boon for the management of the, uh, of the budget at Commerce and therefore the management of the mission. Anytime you do one of these migrations, it's, it's not easy. There's a lot that goes into it. How have you guys been preparing over the last year plus to do this migration? Has it been mostly on the data side and mostly on the process side? Because the customization is what, what usually gets people. Well, first of all, it should be noted that this program is run out of the CFO office, and they've done an exceptional job of, of dealing with, with change management and uh, with the expectations of functioning uh, you know, post-implementation. So the, the UATs, the user acceptance testing, has been absolutely extensive and fairly well received. There was a slow start at first because people always have a natural resistance of it being inured to an application for 25 years. But eventually it hit a stride and then people start coming to the table. It's interesting how that works because once it becomes inexorable, they buy in and then they start, uh, they start uh, working with it. So we're very pleased about that. You know, it's, a, it's very rare that something this momentous, this large, replacing systems this old, goes out without a single hitch and 100%. But we have inured the population to expect some of those ripples initially, but for those ripples to die down, much like a, a rock thrown into a lake, until it becomes manageable and they can move forward and start worrying about the migration 25 years from now for the new system. And this migration, is this to a private sector or a public sector financial system, meaning one of the shared service providers within government no, no, or no. private sector? No, this is in the private sector, uh, and, uh, and so it's going to be entirely cloud-based software as a service, and, uh, but managed by a private partner. The other system you mentioned was the grants management, very mm -hmm. similar effort, mm -hmm. consolidation yeah. of existing systems. I think you said 29. Yeah, well, uh, when you consider all the big ones and also small things that people do on their side, including Excel spreadsheets which, as you know, tend to be ubiquitous. So talk a little bit about that effort, too. Very similar. Is this coming out of your shop or getting the grant shop? And then what's your role? This is from our, from, from our shop. It's being managed out of our shop. It is a migration to a Quizmo environment, right, at HHS. So I think that uh, that's something, the Quizmo environment is something that we need to, to continue to encourage. They've done great work, I mean, with payroll, for example, right? Uh, and so uh, in this particular arena, I think because we are also issuing any and all customizations, we're going to have one source code, one code uh, base that's going to service everybody. And if we have something to contribute from a requirement standpoint, then the requirement is that the Quizmo provider agrees that this customization is going to be included in their source code and is going to benefit all of the, the, the federal government. So it's a win-win situation. And so we're very pleased with that and the progress we've been able to make even under those very strict requirements. And I'm hoping that uh, in about a week we start the transition process, you know, if uh, budget permits. And then, uh, you know, within a month or so we are finished with our major transition.
Same questions around the process changes, the technology changes. It's easy when you go, it's maybe it's not necessarily easier to go to a federal shared service provider. You still have the same sets of challenges if you go to the private sector like finance. How did you work with HHS to ensure that your process and their processes matched up and you weren't trying to customize their processes or they were forcing you to change everything, which, again, as you know, change management, that's where things fall apart. So that has been a very rewarding uh, proposition. Uh, the ERA team at HHS is consummate professionals, is composed of consummate professionals. And a as a result, I think that the process has been about as smooth as it can be. Uh, we had a couple of hitches in terms of interfaces to the financial system, but otherwise it has been remarkably smooth over, over a period of time. And considering that we went through the pandemic, I don't think that made it any easier. But, uh, but we are coming out of the other side, I think, relatively unscathed with that uh, and in good shape. In both of these migrations, both the financial one as well as the grants one, I imagine you've calculated or looked at some percentage or some, some real cost, either savings or avoidance. Is that going to be, enable you as the CIO to, to, to take money from here and put it over there for other IT modernization? Or will it just be maybe the cost may be the same, but you're getting better services, more capabilities? How do, how do you measure some of, what, what some of those metrics? In the grants arena, there's a dramatic um, you know, cost avoidance because maintaining all of the other legacy systems have become increasingly more expensive. Uh, because the platforms could not properly be supported. You have to run all kinds of efforts from a cybersecurity standpoint to insulate them. And so from that standpoint, I think our return on investment will be very fast. So that's a great thing. Now, most of those savings and cost avoidance will be gathered at the bureau level. And so we have to continually sell them on the idea that there should be some degree of a reinvestment into modernization so that we can continue moving forward and create effectively a virtuous cycle of uh, savings in cost avoidance and investment into new stuff so that we accelerate our migrations. And finally, the last bit I just want to touch upon is you also mentioned moving off some mainframes. Talk a little bit about that program as well. This is a common challenge among a lot of agencies who have these old legacy systems. As you heard uh, Ranking Member Connolly say, some as far back as Lyndon Johnson, which I know some that's... Go that, further, some yeah. go even further, I believe, than Eisenhower. Uh, so, so, maybe, so you guys recently got off some mainframes. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the USPTO under Jamie Holcomb's leadership has done a remarkable job of obsoleting some of the old platforms and migrating to new environments and effectively leapfrogging them from mainframes to a cloud environment, which is the best possible scenario. And so, um, and, and some of those retirements were mainframes, uh, Data General and that uh, Unisys type stuff that has been around for a long, long time. And so those are very, very rewarding. And they have done, at least so far, knock on wood, uh, without disruption to the mission, which is, of course, always important. All right, Andre Mendez, always a pleasure to catch up. The Department of Commerce CIO, thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. Take care. We have to take a break. You just heard from Andre Mendez, the Commerce Department's Chief Information Officer. I caught up with Andre after he spoke at the recent Fatara 16 Roundtable. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this segment, we switch gears again. We talked to the Army about its move to zero trust. My guest is Colonel Michael Smith, Director of the Army Functional Management Office for Zero Trust and the Director of the Unified Network Task Force. Colonel Smith, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, open to any questions you have. We're going to talk a lot about Zero Trust, of course, because that's the hot topic that we hear, not just in industry, but across government. And uh, I'm going to ask you to start maybe with this idea of Zero Trust applying to the tactical network. That seems to be 
the long pole in the tent for not just the Army, but probably for all the military services. How are you starting to address that? What are some of those things you're doing to say, okay, how do we take these concepts, these capabilities, and apply it to an environment that's not necessarily that friendly to some of the zero trust and some of the typical cyber capabilities we'd have on a command or a post? Uh, we have to focus on the operational warfighter environment, which typically passes into a DDoS environment, a degraded, disrupted, intermittent, and limited bandwidth environment. Uh, so from that perspective, we are not able to leverage the majority of the capabilities that we put in the enterprise side of the house. We have to leverage what we can from the enterprise and develop add-on solutions uh, for a tactical environment that achieves the same outcomes within the enterprise. So challenging, we've completed our enterprise gap analysis. We are currently working on our tactical edge zero trust gap analysis. We did not have 12 to 18 months to do, do this analysis, so we're going to perform this in a very deliberate uh, manner, but very expeditiously, and hopefully within a couple months we will have a very good product that is very definitive on where we need to apply some resources within the tactical space. How much can you beg, borrow, steal from the enterprise gap analysis than you can apply to tactical? Or are they, it's like apples and oranges, they're maybe both fruit, but they're not similar in the least bit? Yeah, I think you're right. I think what we're leveraging from the enterprise gap analysis is really just the methodology. We're going to apply that same methodology, and it's really just aligning the pillars and the capabilities with the existing capabilities uh, in our infrastructure, and then developing a construct where we're doing analysis of alternatives to divest of specific technologies and or invest or partner with other academic industries, sister service, et cetera. So it's the methodology that's important that we can apply across the rest of our gaps across our architecture. One thing about cybersecurity is you're never at zero, you're never at 100, you're always, always in the middle. And I think that's why this gap analysis is so important. What is the added complexity when you talk about the tactical side? Weapon systems, operational technology, mission partner environments, and the, and the like, what's the additional challenge you have there? I previously spoke to what the Army is currently working on, and that's specifically Enterprise, Nipper, and Sipper. We're leaning into the tactical edge now, and we're also working with organizational networks, uh, which are really bifurcated, isolated networks from the DODA. But to your point, weapon systems, control systems, uh, mission partner environment, that is the challenge. Uh, a lot of those technologies are legacy, for example, control systems, and they do not touch the, uh, the Army's portion of the DODEN network. Uh, so we have to figure out how to apply zero trust principles against their existing capabilities and or identify any gaps that, that we may apply some other policy-type things to, to achieve the same outcomes. But there are a lot of instances for control systems, operational technology, ICS SCADA, that we do not want to include within our enterprise zero-trust architecture because we may cause some significant damage to some systems. Especially when you talk about control systems, operational technology, those, uh, you mentioned HVAC systems is a perfect example. Those were built in a way that are very, not, not necessarily cyber friendly, meaning they weren't built with cyber in mind. This is definitely one of those bolt on, not built in type of occasions. When you walk through the gap analysis, are you taking, if you will, a, because of the time constraints you, you face, are you taking a, the methodology is we'll look at a, a portion of the 
control systems, a portion of the weapon systems, and use that as a kind of a, the broader understanding of, okay, here's generally speaking what we need to think about for these types of systems going forward for zero trust, or how, how is the gap analysis happening? Because as you said, you don't have a ton of time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely uh, right in uh, your thought process. So we're going to take a look at a subset of weapon systems and a subset of control systems and identify kind of the, the, the basic architecture that applies to those, those uh, components. Once we identify that, we identify the gaps, we'll push that guidance out to the larger commands that house those control systems and or weapon systems. And it will be up to them to really apply the zero trust principles in, in that fashion. But due to time, as you mentioned, it'll just be a subset. Just looking over the next 12 to 18 months, you want to get that gap analysis done in the next few months. What are the next steps from there? Do you expect a, lack of a better word, zero trust strategy for tactical systems? Or what do you think is going to come from this gap analysis beyond ways to improve <laughs> these systems? I think the best way to put this is uh, zero trust is a journey. Uh, we're never going to be at 100%. We're never going to have a 100% zero trust architecture. It's going to be a continuous process. Even beyond 2027, things are going to evolve. Adversary threats going to evolve. And the key to the gap analysis is really divestment of capability that doesn't meet zero trust principles uh, and or investment of capability. Uh, so that's what we're looking to do. So to get to that, we have to figure out where the resources are at. So we're going to need to align resources if we have to invest in new technologies. Uh, that's been the challenge on the enterprise side, and that'll be the challenge in the tactical space as we move into it. We are so embedded with systems that have been applied over the last five to ten years. They're very difficult to take out of the architecture and place something new in because they're already integrated. So to integrate a new solution is going to take time. Uh, but it's really applying the resources that can fund those and sustain those over time. When we talk about zero trust, almost everyone I hear you know, always wants to begin with identity access and credential management, ICAM. One of the things you mentioned here at Thames is this challenge of applying ICAM capabilities to certain tactical environments, specifically maybe weapon systems, specifically at the edge. What's the thinking now? How are you starting to pilot, do research? Where are you at with trying to solve this complex problem? Within ASALT, very specific PMs, we are looking to implement or apply the Army's ICAM portion in the tactical space, specifically detail environments, uh, and that will allow us to have a, a directory, a compute and store capability that provides a last known good, so we're not always pulling from cloud-type services. Uh, we will have a capability, an on-prem capability within a tactical formation, that allows us to pull services from ICAM that'll authenticate and authorize uh, access to data applications. From a user perspective, we're also looking at soldier tokens, uh, more from a role-based access control versus an attribute-based. And that allows that token to be used by multiple soldiers within one platform for speed of access and decision-making versus relying on a single soldier with a single credential that may or not be with us throughout the entire fight. Uh, so we're doing role-based soldier tokens uh, that can be used expeditiously. You mentioned you all are working closely with PEO soldiers, so I don't know if this is something more in their world, but it's always of interest when people say, well, what will happen to the common access card? What will 
the future look like? It seems like this role-based uh, access token for the soldier will begin to replace that. Is Where are you at with that pilot? Is, is Are you able to offer any? We're just the beginning stages. We've had some testing. Any updates you're able to give? Yeah, I think we're really in the beginning stages of just piloting with some formation, tactical formations. Uh, we're really trying to combine that effort uh, out of PO Soldier with POC3T's ICAM effort uh, so that they feed the same Army ICAM systems and they're compatible and interoperable. Uh, so really just the, a nascent effort to take an operational requirement to get away from CAD cards in a tactical space and use something that's more simpler and faster for soldiers in specific roles to use. So partnering soldier with C3T. I always have to ask the timeline question because this gets a, it's going to get a lot of excitement for people because while everyone loves to hate the common access cards, is this something you, in the because you're so early, would you, do you have hope that 24, 25, 26, you could actually roll it out much more broader, assuming obviously all the, the big assumptions we're going to make here, it works, it's affordable, it's, it's secure, all, all those important things? I think that's definitely a doable timeline. Right now, we have uh, username and password. So anything uh, better than that is definitely an improvement, definitely better security for the, the information, the data that uh, our soldiers need to access. Uh, we do have alternative multi-factor authentication means within those formations, but really the goal is to get to that token versus having CAT cards with credentials and they're individualized with attributes. So. Looking towards that soldier token is the future. I know there's going to be a lot of interest, and in, we'll watch that closely, obviously, as it continues down the path. The last thing I just want to touch upon is you also mentioned this idea of uh, developing a test evaluation master plan starting summer 2024. Walk me through what that is, what that looks like, and why this matters to the, the bigger discussion here we're having around Zero Trust. The DOD's ZT strategy laid out very specific directives that the services have to achieve. Those are the 152 activities fully integrated. But those really, they're defined by a measure of performance. And what I mean by that is, did you accomplish this one activity? Yes. It really doesn't talk to the measure of effectiveness. Hey, did this achieve the desired zero trust outcome? So what the Army is going to do is we're going to do an end-to-end, -end, one through 152, internal Army analysis verification of our technology and our zero trust architecture that it can achieve the task that was directed and then how do we validate the effectiveness so we're going to lay that piece in and then once we complete an internal army assessment we'll follow on with the red team an external entity doing the same thing in our environment when we don't know Colonel Smith, uh, I very much enjoyed our, our time. I learned a lot about the Army Zero Trust, a lot more to talk to. So, but let me thank my guest, Colonel Mike Smith, is the director of the Army Functional Management Office for Zero Trust and the director of Unified Network Task Force. Uh, Colonel Smith, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Connie, for having me, and uh, gladly open to future discussions as the Army uh, continues down its journey. So, thank you. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.